Welcome, everybody, to Hopeful Majority, episode number six. Yes, you made it to episode number six. I'm your host, Manu Meal, and today's question, well, what does Gen Z actually think about our politics? The million-dollar question, the question that everybody's asking. Remember, first, I share some of my thoughts with you for about five, ten minutes, then we actually get into the conversation. Today's conversation is the first in the history of the Hopeful Majority, very short history. We're going to have three guests instead of one. Three of my amazing friends, three of the people that build the movement with me, Bridge USA, Emily Green, Jessica Carpenter, Ross Irwin, they're going to share some of their thoughts. And remember, every week we come at you, YouTube, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your content, because we've got a hopeful majority to build because you and I are fighting outrage, building nuance, one conversation at a time. Let's get on with episode number six. So what does Gen Z actually think? How do people in my generation approach politics, approach democracy? Where do we stand on all this? Well, let me start off with a giant disclaimer, a giant, giant disclaimer. And you know that we're not the hopeful majority if we aren't already injecting some nuance into the conversation. I think one of the biggest problems in our politics is people in democracy in general, in our conversations, we represent groups and then make claims for the entire group, that we claim to stand for everybody. So the first disclaimer and the main disclaimer that I want to give at this top of the show is I am one young person, 24 years old. I'm probably on the older side of Gen Z. The, the, the conversation that is evolving in our politics, there's, there's a lot of different folks in Gen Z. There's a lot of different diversity in Gen Z. There's a lot of different ways that we think about it. I do not speak for the generation. And I wish other Gen Z activists approached the conversation in that way, because I think we all need humility. So rather than thinking about what does Gen Z think, the frame with which I want to humbly present this case to you and the rest of this conversation to you is in the following way. Not what does Gen Z think, but here's what through Manu's meetings of thousands of young people across the country, here's what Manu's learned through meeting and going to hundreds of different college campuses. Importantly, here's what his amazing friends We'll have Emily Green, Jessica Carpenter, Ross Irwin, people that are leading the movement, Bridge USA, what is complementary to the hopeful majority. What do they think? That's the filter that we want to use through this conversation. So I want to give you a giant grain of salt at the start. Now, with that, here's what I think young people think about. Here's how they think. Here's how I think they approach this question of politics, of democracy. I think there's two giant groups. I think there's two giant groups. And again, there's broad generalization, but here's what we've seen. We've traveled to college campuses, community colleges, HBCUs, gone to technical schools. We've gone to vocational schools, high schools now even. Emily Green leads some amazing work on that side. I think there's two groups. The first group of young people are what you hear all all, all the time from, what I call the loud minority. Now, I'm not making a disparaging claiming. I'm just saying they have their ideas. They're hyper-engaged. They have thoughts. They have beliefs. They're really kind and interesting people with lots of thoughts, with deep lived experiences. They want and have a pretty good idea of what the world ought to look like. And then the second group, what I call, in some cases, the exhausted majority, and this broadly reflects our politics, are the majority of young people that just don't care, that are just not engaged. Um, we rarely hear from them in the polls, but it seems like youth votes are up. It seems like youth turnout is up. But when we go to our colleges, when we go to our classrooms, when we hear a lot of students just want to live with their life, they just want to get a good paying job after they graduate college or if they're in high school, they just want to live their life. A lot of them don't even know what to think about politics. And oftentimes a lot of us feel like it's thrust upon us. And that group is the group that 
we're interested in talking to and listening to and engaging. Because I think that is a group of young people that are looking for a way, a more aspirational way to think through their politics, what we call Bridge USA, what, as you know it through this show, the hopeful majority of people across our politics. I think those young people, just like broadly in our politics, you have a large undercurrent of very loud voices that seem to be dominating the conversation, and then nothing else, or or hear slivers. And our job and my objective is how do we empower those students? How do we empower those young people, not necessarily with ideologies and ideas, but just with spaces to listen, to develop their skills, to find community, to make friendships? How do we empower my fellow young people to find the spaces where they can refine their ideas, where they can actually come up with what they believe, where they can encounter people that are different than them? We are lacking spaces across society where people can't even have these conversations. How are you supposed to make up what you make up your mind on issues at the age of 20, 18, 19? And importantly, with the advent of social media and with the growth of digital technologies, AI, chat GPT, think about Facebook, Instagram, think about disruptive technologies left and right across the board. People my age and younger are being bombarded with the news, bombarded with information way early way, way, way early. We're being exposed very early. So my answer to the question, how do young people think about our politics? How do they actually engage? What does Gen Z think? To put it very broadly, is, let me say something, a nuanced answer that requires deep exploration, but importantly, I think a lot of them don't think about it, and a few of them really think about it. So what's the strategy? How do we get folks engaged? The million dollar question. You're like, Manu, tell me, what do we do about it? What is Bridge USC doing about it? You know from episode one and two, you can go to either. You can even go to to my conversation with with, with John Wood Jr. where we talked about the origins of Bridge and Braver Angels and some other amazing organization doing this work. We went from three students at at UC Berkeley and Notre Dame and Colorado Boulder, those original days to to thousands. This last semester, we engaged 3,500 young people, amazing student leaders from across the spectrum. As I said, not an ideological group in terms of moderates. These are people that have really strong ideas, really strong beliefs. These are people that are engaged, that might be disengaged, that care or don't care, but they're all united by temperament. As we said, the hopeful majority, temperament. It's not a question of left-right. It's a question of open-minded or closed-minded. Nuance or outrage. Do we want to give in to easy, quick wins or substantive discussions that actually get us places? So young people in Gen Z, stop treating them like a monolith. We are a generation of people that come from all walks of life, from different backgrounds, different states, different ethnicities, different ideological backgrounds, different family perspectives. We are from the right, we're from the left, we're from the middle. We are ready. That's the most important piece. I think people in my generation are craving an alternative. And the conversation that you'll hear next with three amazing fellow young people that I get to work with, the privilege of my lifetime to be doing this work with some people that I consider far more engaged, more interesting, more intelligent. It's a privilege. What you'll hear from them is nuance across the board. You'll hear from their experiences, where do they stand? 
How do they think about these political issues? This conversation is going to be fascinating because I think it's going to shatter some myths. And not just, you know, myths that come out of nowhere. I think myths that are reinforced by loud voices. I think you'll hear nuance in terms of how we actually ascribe values to certain issues. So the most important thing when it comes to answering this question, what do young people think, is not a question of what they think. I think it's a question of how they think. And I think you have a loud group of people that are hyper-engaged and a largely disengaged group of people that are either exhausted or just don't care. And the best way that we get those folks involved is we show them that to be involved, to think about our politics, to get involved in our democracy, that is not only a question of just not volunteerism, but it's a question of our country. It's a question of our society. Them being involved, that's how they make friends. That's how they make relationships. This is a community. We don't sell people in the blood sport that is politics. We get them engaged in the fabric of vision. That's what our politics ought to be about. That's what our democracy ought to be about. Young people are ready to lead left, right, blue, green, doesn't matter where they stand. A united temperament is what guides a lot of us in our generation. I didn't say everybody because I don't speak for everybody. But a lot of young people are ready for an aspirational vision. And that vision is not one motivated by ideology because a lot of us want change. And I don't mean change in a liberal sense or a progressive sense. I mean change in terms of the status quo is something that's got to evolve. Just like we talked about in episode three with Jeremy Suri, American experiment is a constant evolution. The question is what type of temperament do we take to actually engage? And I'm so excited to welcome three amazing fellow young people. Hesitate to call them colleagues because we're, we're amazing friends. We've, 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 we've gone through crucibles of work. We've been challenged personally, financially, Sacrifice a lot to be doing and leading this movement, to be working for some of the most amazing young people we've met across the country because we believe in one thing, and that is e pluribus unum, out of many, one. This notion that our society, our democracy, our politics requires the majority of us that are exhausted, disengaged, or just don't care to get involved because our temperamental shift in our politics requires people to be open-minded, to listen, to be tolerant. Because the loudest voices in our politics and our democracy, I'm afraid to say, have hijacked the conversation, and it's time to take that conversation back. Not for some kumbaya, feel-good reason, but so that we can push our society forward to actually create solutions. Not some vacuous platitude, but real concrete methods. Go to episode five where we talked about, with Sophie Barron, what it actually takes to have this conversation. So with that, let's welcome three of my amazing friends. Let's hear what they think about our politics and our democracy. Welcome, Emily, Jess, Ross, also known as the stars of Bridge USA, the cast. Nobody in the audience, just so you know, has any idea what Bridge USA even is currently. Uh, but welcome to the show. Thank you all for being here. Thanks for having us. So, yeah, no, Jess, so, you know, I was I, right before this episode when we were doing the prep in my mind, I haven't been more nervous for this episode than I have for this is like this one, this conversation I've been actually nervous for like these are just to everybody that's listening. These are the people that like actually do the work of what we're talking about in the hopeful majority. So I'm just super grateful for your time, um, for you being here. And for context, as we talked about right before we started this conversation, in the first 10 minutes of the podcast, we talked about what this movement called Bridge USA actually is. So I appreciate you being here. A lot of people think of you all as inspirations because all of us, theoretically, the word on the street is that we're young. Uh, we're all under the ages, though one of us no longer is uh, under the age of 25. Um, we'll let, we'll let uh, he or she out themselves shortly. 
Um, but you all are doing work that many young people would want to be doing. And so I just want to turn the mic over to you and ask you, like, what's your story? You know, like, what's your inspiration? Why? How did you end up where you are today? Um, so I don't know. For the first one, because we have in the the first history of the hopeful majority, multiple guests. Uh, Emily, do you want to kick us off? Yeah. Also, thank you, Manu, for having me on. I'm very excited to be on your show. The short story is I grew up in a politically divided family. So when I first heard about Bridge USA, I honestly thought there's no way that people from across the spectrum can actually sit down and have a civil, productive conversation with each other. I went into my first discussion expecting to see people yelling at each other, people getting intense, people feeling misunderstood. And I left seeing exactly the opposite of that. I saw people being able to sit down with people who they fundamentally disagree with and say, hey, I still think that my side is right, but I got a chance to better understand you. And it got me hooked. So I started getting involved with the Arizona State University chapter. I served two presidencies there and was a chapter member before that. And I started to reflect on my high school journey and thought to myself, wow, I wish there was a way for me to have joined Bridge earlier. And I was at the summit back in 2019 when I think there was about 30 students. And I walked up to... Jonathan Ampelor, who no longer works for Bridge. And I said, hey, why don't we do this in high schools? And word got back to you, Manu, and you came up to me and you said, hey, I heard you have this idea about high schools. And I said, yeah, I do. And you said, sounds great. You should do it. And that is how I started the work for <laughs> By the way, there's something eer- eerie about having M tell me what what I said to to her. So I, I hope it was it was all good about all the awesome work that we're gonna do with high schools. Welcome, M, and thank you for all the work that that you do. Um, Jess, you wanna you wanna tell us your story? What what brings you here? Why are you here? What got you here? Mm-hmm. What's your dealio? Yeah, I feel like reflecting on my bridge journey, I really just fell into place here actually, because I mean, coming into college, I was interested in politics, didn't really know where I fell politically. uh, So I knew that I didn't want to join the college Dems or college Republicans club at ASU with Emily. Um, It was like a tabling, a student tabling thing. And I saw the bridge table and I was like, okay, cool. So I went up, found out that they literally just talk about the issues. It's kind of more of an educational uh, space. So I started going to meetings and What I really enjoyed was that I got to learn about issues better and like know what people were saying across the aisle without actually having to take a stance. And I learned more about myself that way. And I just feel like that's a really good way to discuss politics. Um, And so that's kind of what kept me going. And then how I joined the national team is uh, I also went to a retreat or a summit in 2019 in Austin, Texas, um, and there, the- there's something weird happening <laughs> at these summits. What? what? Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, no, like being there, I, I think we were there with maybe like 60, maybe even less than that students um, in the small little room, a bunch of roundtable discussions happening. And I realized that this is actually I was part of something bigger than I thought, bigger than just ASU. And it 
really got me amped about what we're doing with Bridge. It made me want to get more involved. Uh, I started off as the graphic designer. Over the last couple of years, I've made it up to chief marketing officer. Again, don't know how that happened, but I kind of fell into it. Um, and I don't know. I just I feel like what we're doing is super important. And what I really enjoy about my job within it is it's kind of there are so many different ways to get into bridge building and get into bridge USA, whether you have like partisan views or issues that you're passionate about. And I feel like there's so many ways to communicate what we're doing with people. Uh, so it really keeps my job interesting. It's just finding those different avenues to get people plugged in. Um, Cause I think it's important what we're doing. You know, I could ask so many questions like what is bridge building and we'll get into it um, because to some people that's going to sound like it's a civic architecture fraternity. But I do want to say that, you know, what what's evident and then we'll go to Ross, but Jess, Emily, like every one of the people that are working in the movement of trying to elevate a new level of sort of politics, every one of them is more humble than the next. And I think that's one of the defining characteristics of the people in the hopeful majority is a degree of humility and a degree of wanting to be there. I could say so many different I could heap praises on on each of these people, um, but uh, at the risk of sounding like an admiration society, I'll just go to go to you, Ross. Excellent. Well, yes, thank you for for having me, Manu. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's fun to be here on on you know one of the first few episodes of the Hopeful Majority, and excited to see the the future that it has. Um, I really got into Bridge for two main reasons. One is on the kind of spiritual philosophical level. And that's basically that I grew up in a, a small rural majority conservative town. Um, and I had a wonderful, you know, growing up there, a wonderful childhood. Um, and it was a community full of people who wanted to help each other, cared about one another. Right. Um, and felt protective over their community. When I was looking at what college to go to, um, the best school I got into was UC Berkeley, which is where Manu and I met, which is why I wore the shirt today. Um, and the people in my community were very concerned for me, legitimately concerned for my safety and well-being, um, attending a school that was known as very liberal or very progressive. And <clears throat> I couldn't be told a lot of things at, at, at the age of 18, um, but it was the best school I went to. And so I, I ignored the advice or the, the warnings um, and went down. And so once I got to Berkeley, I found a, a group of people, a community there of loving people who wanted to help each other, right, who cared about the world. Um, and they were equally flabbergasted that I came from a small rural town as the people in my hometown were as flabbergasted that I was just going to a liberal school. Um, and that just, my town is named Sonora, California in the beautiful county of Tuolumne. And that disconnect between people I loved in both places who cared about the world and wanted to make it better, right? hating one another and, and having this, this view of the people in the other region or area as these kind of evil monsters, right. Who, who wished harm upon the world and, and the people around them. It was just, it was kind of crazy to see. And it, it was unsettling to me because I knew something was wrong, um, that these two communities hated each other and they didn't even know each other. And then, once I got to Berkeley, if you've heard uh, 
Manu's story, his and I, it's very the same. Milo Yiannopoulos came to campus. Um, he was invited by a conservative group. Much of the campus community protested beforehand, was very scared about him coming. The event was supposed to happen, and the night that it was supposed to happen, there were gigantic protests and counter-protests um, right in front of where the event was going to take place. And that did not just maintain as a protest. It broke out into a brawl, into fights, into things being lit on fire. And that was a wake-up call for me that the division I saw between my hometown community in Sonora and my new college community in Berkeley, that that wasn't just a division between those two places. It was a division that was wrestling for the heart of our country, right? That it was all over this divide between liberal conservative, urban rural, whatever it is, that divide, um, I realized that it was so pervasive, right? And so egregious and so vitriolic that I felt like I should work on it. Myself, Manu, and a couple others uh, came together and and started what what you now see as Bridge USA. Ross, what I've what I've heard is that you actually started off as a business major at Berkeley. I hear I hear that's the word on the street. That um, is the word on the street. I finished as a business major too, but so what? Um, how did how did some random business major? And I want to go through all of our backgrounds, but. Uh, how did a random business major stick with this work, other than the fact that I, I peer pressured you in? Um, how did I stick with this work? Well, the fact of the matter is, A, it's incredibly important, and B, no one was doing it. Right. What I remember in, in our earliest days was talking to people about Bridge USA and one of two things happening. Either A, they really loved it because they didn't understand it, or B, they thought it was stupid because they did understand it. They thought it was naive. They thought it was pointless. In fact, many people thought that we were kind of facilitating or platforming evil people, and thus we were part of the problem. And I, what I could see was that liberals and conservative students from all across those spectrums and, and even on different spectrums were able to do this constructively respectfully. And not only were they just able to do it, they liked it and they felt like they needed it. And that gave me a clue that what we were doing was something special, that it was needed. And that's why I continued on uh, to work with Bridge USA throughout college and now until the ripe old age of 25. So we can out me as the, as the old guy now. There it so is. You're... <laughs> what did you say, Jess? I said, there it is. Cause one of us is going to be exposed as 25. So. Last last episode, or, or actually the next episode, next conversation we'll have is actually with uh, one of our mutual friends, Amir Odom. And I think that conversation, one of the one of the jokes that Amir and I have been talking about is the age of the people doing this work. One con one piece of context, by the way, that y'all should know. Uh, and then I have a more targeted sort of question, but I'm curious if anybody else has just thoughts. Feel free to jump in. Is that this? Uh, we're having this conversation a week after 4th of July. Last week, we had our mutual friend Sophie Barron on where we talked about some of the challenges with young people. Before that, we've had some amazing, interesting guests like historians on. We've had Isabel Brown on. Um, we're going to have a lot of our students on upcoming. You know, there are so many different things that we could be doing with ourselves, especially at a time where the country's going through its independence. Uh, there's so many different things that we get asked to do. Um, there's so many different pressing priorities on our time and our needs. Like, why this problem? Like, let's get real for a second. Like, why this? 
I can jump in here. I, when I think about what else I could be doing right now, I mean, obviously there's issues that I'm passionate about, but if I were to think about going to an organization or a nonprofit or a department or anything that were to work on those issues, I would still resort to bridge building and like having discussions and trying to moderate the disagreements as my method of finding solutions or tackling those issues. And I feel like I've gotten that mindset from Bridge. Um, and I just see that as the method of achieving goals now that a lot of other people don't have that experience and they don't see that as a sufficient method of problem solving. And so I feel like before I can personally move on to actually go address and work on other things that I'm passionate about or interested in, I'd first like to show other people that it's also possible and that this is a good way to do it. Um, and also it kind of instills a little bit of hope in you because if you go into a place where you think everybody around you is crazy, um, nobody's going to want to talk to you. You're going to disagree on everything. It's going to be a pretty bad work environment um, and you're probably not going to get very far. So I feel like that kind of solves both problems for me here or addresses them here. Two quick questions, two quick questions. Um, one, what is bridge building? And two, what are some of the issues that you actually care about? Um, so bridge building, in my opinion, means basically agreeing to come together and just talk and work together. You don't have to agree on everything or anything besides maybe how necessary it is that something needs to be done about a certain issue. You don't have to compromise your views. You don't have to change your mind. It's just agreeing to come and just open that that line of communication between people um, and just see where it goes. The issues that I care about, um, definitely the environment. I'm very passionate about that. Uh, women's rights, human's rights, stuff like that. But when I'm talking about like what I would want to do next, um, I think a big thing that a lot of young people care about is the environment and having conversations. I've heard so many different solutions from people across the aisle. And again, they are only able to talk about those and we're only able to implement those solutions through build, bridge building and opening that line of communication. So that's why I see this as a first step. You know, Emily, you mentioned a little bit earlier that you were somebody that attended the summit, then got interested, and then started working with sort of a lot of the high school work. Like, what are some of the issues that you've heard students that are not even college yet talk about that are of interest to them? And importantly, just, you know, what are some things that you actually care about? I think what I hear from the high school students issues that they care about is environment is a key issue. I think also just like this fear of, oh, Gen Z might be the first generation that isn't better off than the previous generation. I think that's something that like we have high school students who are deeply concerned about what their future looks like in America. And this idea of, is the American dream dead? Is there any hope to living in America anymore? I think also an issue that high schoolers genuinely care about a lot is gun violence in America right now with, um, you know, mass shootings happening in high schools more frequently in this decade than they have in any other decade. I think that is a huge concern and something that is very top of mind for them as they're in high schools currently right now and being directly impacted by that. This Some might issues. sound, sorry, really quickly, Em, this might sound like a naive question and something that Jess and I've talked a lot about, but do you feel like 
especially sort of given our like politics right now, uh, when you say things like gun violence, what some folks might hear is that that must be only, you know, liberal students or it must be only conservative students. Like, do you have a read on it? Are some of these issues on party lines like they seem to be for older generations? Do you find it to be writ large a concern? I know like you obviously don't speak for all high school students, like any of us can jump in on this, but what's your thought there? Because I know that something that somebody in the audience right now is begging me to ask is, is that just a left issue that you're saying everybody cares about? I would say, no, I don't think that it's just a left issue. I think that there are still conservative students who are saying, Hey, like we, we're being impacted by this too. We want to feel safe in our schools too. And I think that where there's a lot of frustration that I hear from students is that it feels like, unfortunately, each time there is a school shooting, we have this broad mass, you know, conversation about like, what do we do next? What are the next steps? And then it feels like no action is taken. And when I say no action is taken, I mean, for both like people on the left and people on the right, we don't, you know, come up with any kind of solution. We just stay the same. And I think that's where, honestly, high schoolers begin to feel really apathetic. And I know that there are a lot of high schoolers who vote, but they're not necessarily ones who are 18, of course, but there's not necessarily an excitement to vote because they also feel like the options being presented to them aren't quality candidates who they necessarily want to vote for. I hear a lot of the high schoolers talking about how they feel like now it's more they're voting against somebody than for somebody. By the way, what's really odd about this is we're saying the high schoolers. I feel it makes us suddenly seem so much older than everybody. It gives me a massive existential crisis. Uh, Ross, you made a you made a face when M said there's no action being done on those issues. Like, is there a reason why you made that face? Yeah, I mean, um, it's it's just it's miserable. Um, specifically on the topic of gun violence to watch this country, you know, America try and have a conversation about darn near anything. Like it's, it's terrible to watch because people die, students die, kids die, something bad happens and the right has got their talking points, their solutions they want. They say all those things. The left has got their talking points, their solutions. They say all those things. They then fight about that for somewhere between three and seven days, as long as, as it'll get clicks and likes in the news cycle. And then we're done. And, you know, a couple months go by, same thing happens again. Israel-Palestine was very similar when tensions were hotter over there about six, you know, six to eight months ago, having the same conversation, no progress made. And I mean, specifically within American discourse, I, I don't claim to be able to, to fix that issue at all. But the problem is that Within American society, there is no skill of being able to talk with those people you disagree with, to learn from them, to be curious about them, to even develop some shred of respect for people who vote differently than you. But why do you think that is? Like, honestly, well, like, why, why, like, I don't even mean from a bridge standpoint, like, why do you think... We talk about this a lot. Like, almost every late-night conversation we have in our apartment ends with, like, <laughs> the only way we can bring the country to is like go to war. <laughs> like or why? Aliens. Why do you or aliens. aliens? You know, like I know Jess and I talk about this on marketing front. Uh, well, I think the incentives um, for our media and our politics are terrible right now, and I think they specifically incentivize outrage and anger 
and they have no incentive for solutions, right? Like, I don't remember the exact number, but I think there were over a hundred bills, bipartisan bills passed in Congress, you know, over the last like two year session. Did you hear about him? No, never. Right. But we can't come together on the, you know, on the budget deficit bill, right. Or the, the spending bill, um, raising the debt ceiling, excuse me. So we're going to hear about it for two weeks. Right. And all the time there are bills being passed, bipartisan bills on climate, right. And saving American lives and figuring out things like the chips act, right. About American manufacturing that, that have a lot of bipartisan support, nothing, right? But there's a fight to be had, and that means more clicks, which means more ad revenue, which means better bottom lines for media companies. Additionally, politicians, if you can enrage someone, you can get them to tweet about you, right? Or post about you on social media, to donate to your campaign, to say, hey, Here's this this person that really defends, you know, what it means, what I think it means to be American, whether that's left or right. It's just incentivized for them. And the final thing I'll say, and I I hate to hear this, and I I hear this a lot. I talk to people who are in the policymaking world, right, live on Capitol Hill and work on Capitol Hill. And they're like, well, I don't know how necessary Bridge USA is. Actually, like, we work together well when it's behind closed doors. And that's the saddest thing ever, because it means that our leaders are practicing bridge building and compromise and conversations with people they disagree with. Right. But they're not showing anyone else because it's unprofitable and unpopular to show that, Um, which means these skills are there. But the incentive structures as far as media and politics are terrible and only incentivize division and anger. I think Ross, like that's the reason why we do this work, not to like speak collectively to everybody, but like from my own lived experience is because, you know, we can sit back and be like, oh, political polarization has bad consequences. But I think what the consequences are is we're seeing people not be friends with people that vote differently than them, not even, you know, even engage with the idea of potentially dating someone who has a different political affiliation than them. There was recently a study that said, um, I don't remember the exact statistic, but it came out and said that people wouldn't dorm with someone who had a different political affiliation than themselves. And those are the consequences of political polarization and these bad incentives and politicians putting up a front of polarization, but not actually like, you know, behind the scenes, they're okay to talk with someone across the aisle. The consequence is, is that people are being isolated from each other, from their neighbors. There's not a lot of camaraderie or community in current American society outside of your political tribe. If you are in your political tribe, then you have community in there. But once you leave outside of that bubble, then it I, it's kind of become a dog-eat-dog world where people don't trust each other. And I think it's sad that we live in a society now where I saw something on Twitter where uh, this guy, he was wearing a Confederate shirt and he was fixing somebody's tire on the side of the road And this person was just shocked that somebody wearing a Confederate shirt would help someone change their tire on the, you know, 
side of the road. And I think, you know, I'm not saying that I side with this man at all. I don't. But I think that speaks a lot of volumes to where we're at in our society, where we're shocked when people who are fundamentally different than us, though, can just show an ounce of kindness to someone. And I think that is the direct consequence of a lot of the political polarization that we face and why I do the work that we do. I kind of just wanted to go off of that because I think what's interesting that both M and then Ross just highlighted is it's almost like the sacrifice of engagement and clicks and sharing all those loud extreme voices is our social fabric as a country. Because you can no longer, how Emily was saying, go to a neighbor and like trust that they're going to be kind to you. I can't, you can't like walk around and see anybody who's wearing like a Black Lives Matter shirt or a Blue Lives Matter shirt and not make assumptions about them. And I think that's really interesting. And it's especially interesting because when I think back to like why America was made or why our country was made, it was so people from all different groups and different people and religions can come together as a collective and work alongside each other. And it's almost like by leaders doing the bridge building work that's necessary in in our country, by them doing that behind closed doors and then putting out into the world like a completely opposite face, you're essentially stripping away the fabric of what our country was supposed to be, in my opinion. I think that's really interesting. Well, and and the worst part about it all is, as we know here who do this work all the time, majority of it's fake, right? Like the, the hatred we have each other for each other is based on like false assumptions. The news lines we create or the, the headlines we create for news stories are like, you know, kind of drummed up so that they drive the most interest. Like it's based on, on false, a false understanding of who our ideological opposite is. Like if, if people really couldn't talk to each other and we're so different, I don't think we'd be doing this work, right? Because it'd be impossible. The reality is once you strip away those, those things telling you to be hateful, to be divisive, it's surprisingly easy for Americans from all across the political spectrum to sit down and, and have a, a productive conversation with each other. So not to be that guy, but I'm going to burst our bubble for a quick second because I know that people in the audience right now are thinking these four sound incredibly naive. Like, this sounds very naive. Like, M, thanks for your example about the Confederate guy. And by the way, this is how our team meetings go, so I, I apologize. But, you know, this is this is where I have to bring the skepticism of, like, you know, you talk about this conservative guy doing – or Confederate person, sorry, that's wearing the shirt, the Confederate shirt, and they're doing something – that that just sounds like you're normalizing that ideology or Jess, you mentioned the blue lives matter uh flag person you know somebody supporting that ideology you know and and us saying well no there are actually there's some humanity across us that stitches it together and the piece of this conversation that blows people's minds i mean uh, this show is nothing right now in terms of audience and i still get feedback most of it hate which tells me the hopeful majority is building and even in that tiny bit of hate that i get people keep asking like is it do you like they're shattered by the fact that there's four gen z people talking about how we aren't actually that different which just scratches the grain so could somebody like just respond to this notion of or work through this notion of of us talking about these extreme views and and the response to this notion of normalizing those views um how do you think through that Well, the first thing I'd say is if 
we're a bit naive, I think that that's a best place to be, right? Because we're naive in the sense that we believe in the human spirit and that, that there's hope for humanity and that actually we all share a shred of common humanity on which we can build a society together. So if that's naive, right, then the founders are naive and I'm naive. Um, to the point of like platforming or normalizing, right, Um this is always, to me, it's a really weird idea in the internet age. Like, go on any social media site. You'll find a gigantic platform for almost any type of view. Um, so a lot of people are already platform. The second thing is we have not seen that that shutting people down and pretending like they don't exist is helpful, right, in in keeping an idea out. I'll use, you know, something like white supremacy, right? This idea that white people are better than other races. That was an idea in the, you know, in the, the 20th century that had a lot of popularity, right? And we shut it out for a long time. It's still back, right? It's, it's back. Um, it's always been there. Now it's just more out in the public light. And so even with the most extreme viewpoints, you can say like, oh, we're well, platforming them. The reality is they have a platform, right? And that these ideologies are not extinguished. So if you have a viewpoint that you think you hate and is abhorrent, right? Pretending like it's not there and not giving it any light isn't doing anything to to disinfect, right? Um, and but I, don't you think that giving it the light, like some people would argue, right? Like I think two weeks ago it was, there was the the, the entire issue between Hotez and RFK, you know, Um like some would argue that actually having and and showing it the light brings out basically the bad things from under the bed. Like just let them stay there. Um, and and any like yeah, I, I'm curious what you think, Ross. And then maybe M, since you, I know somebody wants to ask you since you invoked the example of somebody in a Confederate shirt doing something nice. Well, to use the analogy of the bed, if you leave something under the bed it's going to fester there. It's going to start to mold. And then that mold is going to grow, right? You have to take things out. You have to look underneath. You have to look at what you've swept under the rug and be willing to engage with those things because they're not going away if you stick your head in the sand. Something that I would also say is we, as a country, as America, we live in a pluralistic society. So there will always be individuals who you disagree with strongly, and there will be individuals who disagree with you strongly. And I want to live in a society, though, where I can live my life the way that I see fit and, you know, not and also have that person live their life in the way that they see fit, even if I think that that is abhorrent and wrong. I think that that is like a fundamental like building block to like living in a pluralistic society is that those people also get to live the way that they want to live. Now, if they're like making, you know, threats and like violence of threats, that's a different conversation. But if they are just peacefully living their life in a pluralistic society, which we do live in America, it is their right to live the way that they see fit, just as much as it is my right and all of our rights here. So that's the first thing that I'll say. 
The second thing is that I strongly believe that there are good ideas and there are bad ideas and there are like good concepts of how society should run and there are bad ideas and concepts of how society should run. And the only way to necessarily like fight these like bad ideas is with better ideas. And how do we do that in the public square through debate, through having conversations? So the best way to talk about maybe some things that people think are wrong about what RFK Jr. is saying about vaccines is to refute his science with better science. It's to come to him with articles that are saying, hey, maybe you have this point right, maybe you have this point wrong. On this topic, I recently just read an article that Vinay Prasad wrote about it. He is um, a doctor. He's a medical doctor. And I believe he's also an epidemiologist. He's an epidemiologist. Yeah. Okay. Yes. He I just actually, know all the Indian people. <laughs> he's great. He's fantastic. But what he did is he took the claims that RFK Jr. was making on Joe Rogan's podcast and he said, hey, this is what I think he got right. And this is actually what he got wrong. And here's why. That is, in my opinion, the best thing that we can do with any kind of idea is actually to engage with the idea and to say, hey, you know, I can see or like I'm trying to see where you're coming from. But have you ever thought about this? We will never change people's minds and perspectives by shutting them out from society. Uh, again, this is under the pretense that they're just living their lives. They're not threatening anyone with violence or anything like that. If we actually want to progress as a society, I think it's by engaging with people who we think have bad ideas and potentially showing them a better idea to change their mind. And you can only change someone's mind when you engage with them in a respectful way. Nobody's going to change their mind if you're, you know, yelling at them or trying to shove your ideology down their throat. Yeah, Yo, you know, what's really interesting about this is every time I have conversations with you, like it pushes my thinking forward. So uh, for everybody that's in the hopeful majority, one thing you should know is that I'll come up with a dumb analogy like the bed and then somebody like Ross or Emily will perfect the analogy. So I just want to run with this a little bit more and maybe go to you, Jess, because you have to actually deal with everybody in social media when it comes to doing this work. And you've been doing this way, way longer than I have on the social media side of things. Um, but it's almost like you're forwarding a, a way to think about bridging and dialogue where many people in the public square think about it as just accommodating bad ideas. But you're actually forwarding the claim that extreme ideas, this is a way to counter-radicalize, that this is a way to actually reduce the mold from spreading under the bed, that in fact, if you turn a blind eye on things, that gets worse. Is, Jess, would you say that that's relatively accurate? Yeah. And- I was thinking about this while Em and Ross were talking, and I have two thoughts. So one is back to the Joe Rogan, the Dr. Hotez thing, is I'm while I was watching that go down on Twitter, I became more and more an advocate for like, we actually, this is why we need to have conversations and especially bring them public is because what Emma's saying is like combat what he is saying with better science and stuff. And I think that when we take when we remove that opportunity by not having those conversations, especially when it is from prominent people, you're almost taking away people's opportunities to think for themselves. So it's like, I just, I feel like that's something that we really need is we need 
critical thinkers and individual thinkers and people to come up with new ideas and really challenge the status quo, especially if you're trying to combat extremism or hate speech or whatever. You need people to be thinking and analyzing these things. And when we're not even having the conversation or broadcasting that conversation and challenging it, you're removing people's chance of even thinking and having a chance to engage in, engage in and jump into that conversation. Um, when it comes to the social media front, it's also a little bit difficult now because, again, I've been in so many conversations where I can see the other side. And so my go-to is always when I see certain people with their views, I'm like, well, why do they think that? And with the society that we have now, with the politics that we have, the social media that we have, it almost forces people to choose sides or it does force people to choose sides. And oftentimes um, those sides that you're forced to pick between are the ones that are characterized by the loudest, most extreme voices, because the rest of us don't really have a voice because we're not engaging enough or we're not enticing enough or emotional enough or whatever in our arguments to warrant media coverage. And so again, with like the Blue Lives Matter shirt that I had is I feel like people felt like they didn't have a space to voice their opinions or to even have a conversation about where to police fit into this and how can we make it better or whatever. So they automatically have to go to a side that's championing, championing them and showing that they support them. And so that's what pushes people to the fringes. And those ideas a lot, in my opinion, when you actually talk to people who you would say are extreme, there are definitely people who are extreme, but there are also people who are there because they had nowhere else to go and they just found a place and a tribe. And I think that's very interesting in our politics. So I've just become a little bit more, I now take a moment when I see people like, oh, well, that's hate speech. That's extremism. That's this, that's this. I really sit for a second and question like, is it or is that where they were forced to go? Is it because there's no better alternative? Is it because maybe they had an experience that made them think that way and they never had exposure to something different? And there's just a lot of layers, I think, that we should be exploring, which is, again, why we should have these conversations, even if they are difficult. So that's that's so interesting. And Ross, I can't I can't tell if you're trying to jump in. I think I think you are. Just one thing I would just really quickly say is that you Jess, you said that they don't have another place to go. And I think that is so powerful because it also goes to another crisis in this country of just like alienation and loneliness. Like it, it seems like, I mean, we come across people our age and younger all the time that are like left, right, doesn't matter. They're, they're trying to, they just, they're looking for community. Um, now somebody listening might say, well, why are you giving community to those people? And it seems like Ross had made the argument earlier and, and you guys sort of dovetailed on that, that it's not that we're giving community. It's that, we are providing the space and the table for that conversation to occur for the best idea to win, that it's not legitimizing, but it's creating a platform for a better idea to exist, which is interesting. Ross, were you going to say something? Well, and, and it's not, it's not like super easy or guaranteed that you have a productive conversation. Right. And I think what, what people tend to do is, they find the worst examples that their media has shown to them of the other side. And they use that to basically, they basically ascribe those attributes to anyone who voted for the other presidential candidate. Right. And what we have to do at bridge is create the, the, the platform and the container for a constructive discussion to happen 
right? So that even if you have very, very different viewpoints, you, you have a space that allows you to put them in, you know, in concert with each other and to, to have back and forth and to learn from one another. And so, you know, it's not just take a KKK member, you know, and a black American, put them in a room together and, and never, you know, don't intervene or anything. Like the people who show up, they're expected to exist under a set of rules, right. That we call our norms of discussions you have to have a moderator there so that if people become divisive, hateful, angry, right, that that gets toned back in, right? And with those ingredients, you can have a productive conversation with 90, 95% of Americans, right? There are still bad people. There are always going to be bad people who wish others harm. The problem is how m- many people we think believe that, right, that our media has told us wish others harm. Um, and that that isn't a real representation of their beliefs. So that that's another thing on the platforming is like it has to be done carefully and it has to be done the right way. And, and that's what we're here to figure out. I know we could talk about this for 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 a, a, such a long time. And you've already been exposed to me for two hours earlier today. So I know you're you're itching to get off this call. So just just a, a, a couple of questions that a pivot. I know I know there's so much more we could dive into, um, but. Ross, you invoked the future and you invoked um, this notion that, you know, young people need to have these dialogues and these conversations. And we have, uh, now that we're a week out of 4th of July, the Trump-Biden rematch uh, coming up. And I just... Ew! Gross! Give me away! You've already, you've already, you've already answered the question that I was going to ask, which is um, in the StreamYard chat, uh, but basically, and yes, for anybody wondering, because this is unprecedented in the history of hopeful majority, three guests instead of one, three stars instead of one star, we are using a chat on the back end, and Ross just discovered that there's a chat. Um, so putting that aside for a quick second, uh, one word to describe your reaction to the upcoming, likely, likely, you know, we don't want to be eating crow, maybe it might change, you never know. But currently, as of today, I think, again, July 4th last week, one word to describe how you think about the Trump-Biden rematch. Jess, you want to go first? And we'll just go, go in a quick yeah. circle. My first word is what the F word. And then second is why. Just why. So do you want me to explain? <laughs> okay. Emily? Sad. Ross? disgusting no one's excited why why okay um because we're we're so close on time and there's so many different ways we could take this conversation just to give a little bit of insight into younger people and so many times we get asked like why does it seem like our generation appears to be more apathetic or some of it seems very energized but a lot of it seems like it doesn't really care you see a lot of polling that shows that young people across the board seem disaffected democracy. Like, and I'm going to actually, instead of having all this respond, I'm going to have one question for each of us. Um, again, just in the interest of time. So for you, Jess, specifically the question I have is you said, what the F, uh, and like disgusted, um, why do you feel that way? Yeah. Um, 
this kind of goes back to just, I think, how our generation is feeling is looking at our politics personally, I'm just very frustrated. And we talk all the time about how our leaders aren't working together. Nothing's getting done. Gen Z is like hopeless. We don't have any hope for the future. I was looking at stats earlier and 42% of Gen Z either has anxiety, depression, or feels hopeless about the future. And I just feel like there's a lot of pent up anger, again, which kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier, where I think people are forced to pick sides. A lot of it is just out of anger. Um, And so that's just kind of how I feel is we can pinpoint all of these problems. And we've seen this already go down. And just why? Like, why don't we want better for ourselves? Why aren't we giving ourselves better options? Why are we still entertaining this idea where it's this or that, when in reality, both of our parties are supposed to work for America together? And I just, it's frustrating that we're being sold this idea that you can have one or the other. And these are the best options that we're going to get when these men are literally in their late 70s and 80s. Like, how do they represent me, a 24-year-old? They do not. And the rest of Gen Z, I think, also can recognize that and feel that kind of frustration. And so it's just very frustrating to see this go down again. That's why I said what the F and why. Ross, you, you, you said ew. Why is that? Well, that's a very educated word, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm known for my my extensive vocab. Um, I well, there's there's a bit more kind of official chief operations of Bridge USA take, which I think it's a failing of the political system, right? Like to see these two these two candidates that people were already relatively unhappy with the first time they ran to do it again because neither party can come up with a viable option after that, right? Like, I think there are more options on the Republican side, but the base is more tied to Trump. As far as my Democrat friends feel, like there are no real options, young options in the Democratic Party, right? Which means our our political parties are not making the effort to even engender interest in leadership in, in younger generations. But that's like the nice bridge take. The, the raw Gen Z take, if I'm allowed to give it, is like Trump's a narcissist whose only barometer for success is the, own, you know, the enlargening of his own personal brand, in my opinion. And the other guy doesn't even know he's president, right? He's just being shuffled around. Like, I think that's how Gen Zers feel. That's how I feel. Um, I agree with one of those guys a little bit more on policy than the other one. Um, but they're both terrible options. So I am curious about the non-bridge take and for anybody wondering, and this is actually probably the last question we'll end on before the final question of like the, the question we ask every single guest in the hopeful majority, but, um, feel free to take a stab at this, which is that we're right now expressing our opinions on candidates, right? And we're expressing our thoughts on like the fact that we, you know, like Ross deeply believes that, you know, these two folks should not be running. You know, Jess thinks that from your response, it seems like you have no satisfaction because of how old they are. Um, You know, Emily, you mentioned just disgust. But oftentimes when people hear of bridging and bridge building, it seems like you can't have opinions. So like, how do you all square the last like five minutes with our mission? Because to somebody listening that doesn't know this work, they're like, well, 
great. They talk about bridging. They probably just do it amongst themselves. You know, the people that have this opinion, because obviously there are other people that are fine with one candidate or the other. Right? How do you square that, Emily? Can you Holding reword the question? <laughs> Sorry, as, as everybody knows, I ask very long questions, but how do you square holding opinions with bridge building? I think that's something that every person who's deeply entrenched in the bridge building world has to navigate at one point. And I think where I have kind of settled on it is I hold my opinions very loosely, meaning I am open to seeking out disagreement to my opinion, and I'm willing to change my mind if presented with, you know, convincing evidence to it. But with that, with some loosely, the majority of my opinions are loosely held when it comes to policy. Now, however, I do have some hills that I die on. Those hills are very, like, limited but even in holding those strong opinions, I'm still willing to have a conversation about those opinions. Now, are those opinions that are necessarily going to be more easily changed than these loosely held opinions? No. And the reason why is because most of those hills I'm willing to die on are conversations that I've I've had a lot of conversations about them. And I'm just very convinced that I think that this is what is best. I think that this is the best thing to do, or it's just how I feel convicted on this issue. So I would say, you know, you can definitely have strong opinions and still be involved in the bridge building space and say, hey, that was a really interesting conversation. Thank you for sharing your perspective. I still think I'm right. That is totally okay to say in bridge building. And I think that that's kind of how I've come to answer that question of, I can have opinions, but there is a dividing line. There's some opinions that I know maybe I can be shifted on. And then there's other opinions where I'm like, wow, if I do shift on this opinion, it will have to take like an Everest amount of evidence or a really, you know, life-changing event to get me to change my mind. on Really things. quickly, uh, when you do engage in a conversation on one of those things that is like a quote-unquote hill to die on for you, do you still find value in that conversation even if your mind doesn't change? Most definitely. And I think where the value comes from is I get to understand how somebody else is approaching that issue. And they might be approaching it from a totally different perspective than how I am approaching it. And also it leaves me with questions to ponder about my stance. And I think if we are not engaging with questions that are in good faith and are, could be legitimate criticisms of our stance and we're not willing to ponder with those, then it, to me, that's a boring life. I love learning. So I love learning about areas that I need to maybe reflect on, on why I believe what I believe and to ponder on, okay, how do I sometimes hold these two ideas or values in the same breath. How does that work? Yeah. And, and I think, you know, what I thought of when you asked the question, when you're like, how do you go about this? Right. There, there are parts of when you're doing this work where you have to be, keep your opinions a little bit closer to your chest, right? Let's say you're moderating a discussion. You don't, you shouldn't come out and say everyone, this is how I feel. Because a lot of the people in that discussion are going to lose faith in your ability to moderate neutrally, right? Equally, like if you're a president of a bridge chapter, you can't make your whole bridge chapter about your position on socializing Medicare, right? Or, or 
socializing medicine because you're going to lose a lot of people. But I think it's what I think of is like how therapists have therapists, right? To deal with things like in a way, like if you're doing bridge building work and making this stuff happen, you also need a space where you actually feel free to just state your opinions, right? And, and say what you mean and not have to keep it close to your chest uh, because you can get into a mode where you yourself become scared about stating your own opinions because you know you're talking to an audience of liberals and conservatives and everything in between. So, Jess, do you want to do you do you have a do you have a desire to add to this question? Yeah, I can add one final thought. Um, I think with bridge building, a big misconception is that we're trying to create centrist. And again, how you were saying you can't have partisan views. My argument is that we need people to be passionate about what they believe, because that's what first introduces the issue. And that's how you even start the conversation. Like the person who created NASA and wanted to go to space, they were passionate about that. Therefore, they put it forward. The next step of that, though, is that you do need people to help you do that. And so how I see my views is there are certain things that I'm passionate about that I'm willing to put up on the chopping block to figure out the best way to implement solutions or find ways forward or see how we can create something together. And then there are certain issues that I have that personally I'm not ready or really willing to put up on the chopping block and have a discussion about it because those are ones that I hold really close to myself. So like an example again is women's rights. That's something that's very important to me. And so I'm very careful with when I introduce those conversations versus when I introduce conversations that I think would go a lot further and hopefully would see um, some kind of action on it. But yeah, so that's, I'll stop there. Do you have advice for somebody that is engaged in a conversation on an issue, like one that would be a hill to die on for you? Like you mentioned Mm -hmm. women's rights, like just, I know we're, we're running against time and that happens in every one of these conversations, but I'm just curious, like what would your advice be to somebody that's sitting there wondering like, yeah, but Thanksgiving is tough. Yeah. What I've learned is not to take things personally. Um, so like one example within the women's rights discussion is abortion. I've had a lot of conversations with people about like pro ch- pro-choice and pro-life. And I know that when they're having a conversation with me, it's because they're coming from a place of good faith and they really do believe what they do. That doesn't mean that they're against me or they don't want me to have rights or whatever else. And so I think knowing that not everything is a personal attack is um, really important in my opinion. I also think you have the power to set boundaries. And that's what a lot of people also forget in conversations is when you're having a bridge discussion, you don't have to just air it all out and just go at it. You can literally say, okay, this is how I feel comfortable being addressed. This is what I want to talk about. Um, this is where I will draw the line. And you can really, I think it's a good way to open the conversation that way. Okay, so go ahead. Go oh, ahead. May I add like two pieces of advice too is you don't always have to start off saying what you believe. You can ask more questions to try to figure out what that person believes and, you know, kind of guide the conversation through questions. That way then it's not, at least I find in some conversations that's not as intimidating for me. Because then it's just more of like, I'm curious about what this person thinks. And then I can just ask a question to them and hear what they have to say. The other thing, too, that I would say is you don't have to always have a bridge conversation with every person. Um, 
you can pick and choose who you want to have these conversations with. Now, I would still encourage you, though, like, try to pop your bubble with those conversations, though. Find someone who does disagree with you, who you feel comfortable to talk with, or who you feel more comfortable with, because you're probably going to feel uncomfortable. And that's okay to feel uncomfortable. Um, But not everyone is necessarily going to be the best candidate to engage in with a political discussion or with specific topics too. Yeah. You know, this is where I would push back just a little bit where like, I just, I sometimes feel like telling people like, it's okay to not have the conversation right now. It seems like just nobody's having any conversation whatsoever. Like we're talking about, like, we're trying to get people from zero to one, you know, I think that advice makes a lot of sense, at least in my mind, when somebody's at like a five right now, people are like negative three. Um, and I feel like we should push as much as possible. And that's, uh, part of the challenge here is like, let's have that conversation. I know as the hopeful majority keeps building, like I want us to continue checking in with our audience because this work is tough and it's difficult, right? And it's challenging. And there are days where you want to rip your hair out. And there's days where there's no uh, oftentimes feeling a hope that the hopeful majority can sound like a cliche at best and, and you know, naivete at worst. So the last question that we ask every single audience member uh, whenever they join the comment section, whenever we ask any uh, guests when they join the podcast is, and a question that I often ask y'all is is the why. Like, what actually drives, why are you here? You know, obviously the facetious answer is that we're all technically uh, on the clock. But putting that aside, why does this matter to you? Like personally, just honestly, like why? You know, um, Ross, you want to kick us off? Yeah, I mean, um, there are almost no other problems that are going to be solved unless this problem is, right? And so it's arguably the most pressing problem in American society. And not nearly enough people are doing it, right? Like, they're, they're, it's a hard problem to solve, but it's an important problem problem to solve. And more and more people are doing it. You know, when we started back in 2017, you you remember how little there was going on out there. And we see more and more each day, students getting interested, not just bridge students, students in other orgs, right? Older people getting interested, more interest from, from kind of classically powerful figures in the media and politics, right? We start to see this momentum building. But there's still not nearly enough people working on this. If I thought, hey, there's a big old group of people who are going to make this thing happen with or without me, I might go see something else. But the reality is, is that in the current state, like we need all hands on deck um, working on this problem because we're not going to figure it out anyway if we don't. And if we don't figure it out, we're not going to figure anything else out. And do you want to go? I would say because I've seen how it works in real life. I've seen myself go from a skeptic to having this as my full-time job. I've seen high schoolers realize that they can talk to other students who come from different backgrounds or are thinking about voting differently than them than they do or have parents who are really strong partisans on the opposite side of the aisle. Uh, and I would just say that I think because it matters, 
I think not to like completely echo what Ross is saying, but if we as a society cannot get back to a point where we can talk to each other, try to be curious about each other's thoughts as like Monica Guzman talks about a lot in her book, but just willing to like engage with others in good faith. I don't think any of the problems that we're facing today will be solved because I think what we will see happening is just this cycle of a gridlocked Congress of a Congress that only does some work when one party is like significantly in control over the other. And I don't know about y'all, but that's not an America that I want to continue living in. It's not a state that I think we can really like thrive in. So I think because one, I've seen bridge building actually work. And then two, because I think America deserves better. I think America deserves to thrive. And I think that we as a generation have to start changing that and be willing to be a little uncomfortable to have these conversations. Yeah, you know, America deserves better. And we're all on the front lines of that fight. Jess, you wanna you wanna wrap us up? Yeah, I don't have a better answer than what Em and Ross just said. So I think I guess the third pillar that I would just add is I why I think this is so important is really from a community aspect. There are times just this week watching like the Titanic submarine thing where you just feel very overwhelmed by everything going on and you feel like everybody is just insane and they're crazy and it's very consuming. And then when you actually just turn all of that off, you you realize that not everybody is like that. And there actually are, most of us are normal. Most of us are pretty sensible people. Um, and that's just, it's a really nice, like fresh breath of air in the insanity of everything. So I think it's really important just to maintain that sanity and then also to understand that there is like a community here um so yeah just just i think everybody could right now i hear them listening to this just snapping to that because how could you possibly disagree i mean i mean that seriously i think what you resemble and what you're working on what we're collectively working on i mean that is basically my why you know people oftentimes ask me why i do this work and it's because I have the privilege to do it with people like you, and I don't take it for granted at all. It means a lot to me that you'd spend an hour with me, uh, especially when those bridges aren't going to build themselves. And people might be digging tunnels right now. We we don't know. But uh, I just have I have deep gratitude for y'all. So thank you so much. Thank you for being on The Hopeful Majority. And for everybody listening, we've got a hopeful majority to build. Wow, what a conversation, what a dialogue. Three of my amazing friends, three leaders that are actually building this hopeful majority alongside you, their evidence... I'm evidence that you can get involved. You can fight outrage too. You can build nuance in your local communities, in your places. Remember, leave a like, subscribe if you're on YouTube, leave a review on Spotify, Apple. We need that support because we've got to incentivize people to be hopeful, to be nuanced, to be optimistic, to be idealistic in their thinking, and importantly, to be open-minded because we've got a hopeful majority to build. Next week, we're going to have Amir Odom on. See you then.